Welcome to the first edition of Policy Perspectives podcast, an initiative of the John Howard Prime Ministerial Library. I'm your host and executive editor, Andrew Blythe, and our first guest is visiting fellow and all-round nice guy, Sean Carney. Sean, welcome to Policy Perspectives. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great to be here. Policy Perspectives is a series of occasional papers published by the Howard Library, which aims to critically reflect on policy decisions of the Howard government in order to provide context and perspective for contemporary policy debates and facilitate discussion among the policy community and the broader Australian public. Our guest, Sean Carney, is a visiting fellow at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at UNSW Canberra, who has written extensively about leadership, politics and industrial relations since the Melbourne afternoon newspaper, The Herald, first sent him to work in the Canberra Press Gallery in 1979. He is a political columnist with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and is a former associate editor of The Age and columnist at The Herald Sun. The author and editor of several books, including Australia in Accord, Politics and Industrial Relations Under the Hawke Government, Peter Costello, The New Liberal, The Change Makers, 25 Leaders in Their Own Words, and a memoir, Press Escape. He is also a Vice-Chancellor's Professorial Fellow at Monash University and a regular contributor to the Howard Government Retrospective Conference Series. Sean, congratulations on publishing Nipping and Tucking, Industry Policy Under the Howard Government. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks. It was fun oh, to write. Oh, <laughs> we, will, we'll, we will begin with that, perhaps, if we can ask, firstly, uh, what drew you to writing about industry policy under the Howard Government? Uh, well, I suppose um, I've uh, tended through my career, even though it's you know, mostly been about, um, you know, politics, mainstream politics and policy areas that have interested me have been ones that are a little bit, bit um, off-piste uh, in some ways um, in terms of general um, sort of media coverage, industrial relations being one. It was much larger a few decades ago, but now it's almost, it's pretty much a kind of niche operation. And industry policy was another, I think, um, as the, the sort of um, manufacturing sector and uh, declined over uh, the past quarter of a century or or more. Um, it just interested me because it was still so large, and uh, it's still um, we still need manufactured goods, but um, we're not making them anymore. That so how does that work? Um, and I, I was just interested because I see, see the the Howard government is very transitional uh, and quite important in that process and, and quite uh, unorthodox in its way, I suppose. Well, and of course, being Victorian, I mean, it's a, it's a significant part of the Victorian economy. Absolutely. And my father, I mean, I live in inner Melbourne and my father grew up near me uh, where I live in um, Clifton Hill. And it was the home of the, um, the, the boot trade, the shoe trade. I mean, he was a, a boilermaker by trade Um you know, just went down to one of the local factories, which is now an office works, actually, um, which tells you something <laughs> full of imported uh, stationery uh, goods and um, became a, just walked in and said, oh, you know, I, I, I've done my intermediate. I'd like a job. Uh, I'd like to be a fitter and turner. And the personnel man then, remember, they had personnel men mm, rather mm. before HR, said, um, no, 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 you want to be a boilermaker. I've got a vacancy for a boilermaker. So that's the way it went. And so I, I sort of grew up around the manufacturing sector, I suppose, the metal trades, and uh, it's just always been an area of interest. 
No, very good. And and it, it shows because your paper is so well written uh, for, for an, an area, I guess, of policy that is normally is seen as perhaps dry, but you you have brought to life some of the the key political actors and and some of the milestones during the during the Howard government period. It's, it was a pleasure to read. So, why don't we begin Thank you. Uh, Thank you. by just exploring? You open the batting by reminding readers that John Howard first came to prominence on the national political stage in 1977 and was a man of policy enthusiasms and and strong uh, ideology inclinations. He was appointed treasurer in the Fraser government aged 38. And in only his fourth year as a member of parliament, he assumed the mantle of being the Australian parliament's most senior advocate for free market economic policies. Did John Howard have it his own way within the Liberal Party or were other forces at play during this time? During that time, no, they were they were beginning um, a, a long um, internal dialogue would be the uh, sort of polite way of putting it uh, about how the Liberal Party lived beyond the kind of Menzian settlement, if you like, uh, which Fraser upheld as Prime Minister. Um, you know, uh, John Howard, will be recalled, was uh, sort of an accidental treasurer, if you like, when um, uh, Phil Lynch fell ill and also uh, was uh, sidelined from as treasurer in 1977 because of um, uh, some land deals, uh, sort of a little bit of a controversy around that. Um, John Howard ascended to the treasurer's post, youngest treasurer in uh, Australian history. Correct. Uh, and... Uh, the boy treasurer, as he was called uh, at the time. Uh, it's interesting to reflect on that nowadays, isn't it? Indeed. But uh, And he was just so fresh and different and interesting and so such a vital um, policy man. And he had it brought a different perspective, a Sydney perspective, I suppose, in a way, but also a younger perspective to the kind of what was then the very solid sort of corporate orthodoxy of a whole lot of things, industrial relations and um, and, and tariffs and uh, and also financial regulations. So uh, it, he fought Fraser on that ground, generally didn't win, um, got up a few, got a, a Crawford inquiry, I think, into financial uh, regulation, but nothing really happened substantially. And then it, it lived on that battle all the way through um, Howard versus Peacock, once they went into opposition in, in 83 and they kept exchanging leadership roles, uh, and uh, Peacock from Melbourne and uh, Howard from Sydney, and really it, it wasn't resolved until that final uh, period when Howard resumed as leader in 1995 on the way to the 96 election. Well, and I think this is right because the man himself has always been about the contest of ideas and we, we proudly promote that here at the, the Howard Library. Uh, but we need to remember, of course, that his uh, father was a small businessman having yes. uh, run the uh, petrol station and came up against government interference, uh, which saw the family's livelihood affected by that. So there were many events um, that shaped Mr Howard before uh, entering Parliament. But of course, then we reminded with your paper that uh, he was shadow um, minister for manufacturing uh, at one point as well. So, well, and this was before going on to uh, be minister for business and consumer affairs. 
And yes, of course, and also significantly um, Shadow Minister for Industrial Relations as well um, at the 93 election under Hewson. And and he uh, oversaw the jobs back component of the fight back policy, which was in many ways a kind of father of what came to be known as work choices later on in in John Howard's um, prime ministership. So, you know, and and you're very, very... um, Correct, Andrea, to point out that, yes, his, I suppose in the same way as this policy area interested me, John Howard's policy enthusiasms came from his own personal experience uh, at the kitchen table. Mm. And, uh, I mean, you can see that shot through, you know, with this vantage point of, you know, being many years after his departure from parliamentary life, um, that, you know, there is a consistency there in uh, in in what he believed and and what he tried to do and and in that policy development not um, not shying away from the hard work of of defending uh, policy principles um, but as he t- points out in a number of interviews he's done with us it's um, it's one thing to hold a principle then it's also important to be pragmatic uh, in advancing uh, policy discussions so yeah look what I'd like to do now is if we can move forward to John Howard is now Prime Minister in, in March of 1996. Uh, was it reasonable to assume the unreconstructed economic neoliberal would want to attempt something transformative in industry policy? Well, that, it, you know, history suggests that that's what happens when, when um, you know, long-time advocates finally get their hands on the levers of power or the ultimate lever of power as, a, as the leader especially in the Liberal Party, where the leader has more say in the formulation and um, execution of policy. So I think it, it would have been reasonable to think that he wanted to do that, uh, that he wanted to, you know, implement sort of the, the type of tariff reductions and restructuring of industry, if you like, or industry support that that he had advocated over the years. But he did give signs early that he wasn't, he did come a long way. I think you know we recall that he, he, um, you know he, he decided as a point of principle, um, and as a first principle really on his way to winning that election, that he accepted that Medicare was here to stay, having argued against it a lot. That was a, that was really very much a sign that he was a changed man as a politician. And of course, he disavowed the GST as well at, at, at that election, and I, I believe he he meant it. But things changed after he took office. Well, and I can recall a conversation with Senator Robert Hill, who said that the main uh, thrust of the 1996 campaign from the Liberal Party perspective was, you know, not to scare the horses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in his formal campaign speech delivered a couple of weeks before election day, John Howard spoke of industrial relations and his desire to encourage a sense of uh, common purpose at workplaces. But there was only a glancing reference to industry. In that respect, how would you summarise the performance um, of uh, John Moore as industry minister during the first term of the Howard government? John Moore was had a, had a kind of uh, up and down relationship with John Howard. Um, he'd um, John How- uh, John Moore coming from suburban um, middle class Brisbane, um, you know, professional man good connections to business, a moderate. Um, he had uh, he had supported the uh, removal of John Howard in 1989. 
Um, and, but it then thought better of it and was, you know, uh, fully on board with uh, with, with uh, John Howard's return to the leadership in 95, uh, by, certainly by that time. So there'd been a bit of distance between them. But uh, well, Howard and Moore were the only surviving ministers from the Fraser government who were in that first um, Howard cabinet. Uh, they were uh, both uh, former um, small business ministers in the in the Fraser government. So they, they had a bit, they shared a bit. John Moore didn't really have that much to do apart from, again, as, as you mentioned with regard to Robert Hill, uh, Robert Hill's observation that not to frighten the horses, the, the first term Howard government had other fish to fry, uh, wanted to do something on industrial relations, which it did through the Workplace Relations Act under Peter Reith. Um, and, uh, well, they wanted to do something about tax as well. They wanted to take on the water, uh, Waterside Union and um, largely show that they knew how to govern, having been out of office for 13 years. So largely John Moore did a very good job, I think, in um, maintaining a level of support, public support, uh, through, um, through government uh, uh, programs, um, of the car industry, which was... Could have gone the other way. There is a lot of uh, argument in that um, Howard cabinet, uh, led by Peter Costello, to really start to pull the tariff down hard on the car industry. Um, but uh, more with Howard's very solid support prevailed, and so there was only a basically they deferred uh, the uh, reduction in the tariff until um, 2005. In that first package, and but but with a promise to, and a plan to reduce it further from fifteen percent to ten after that. So, you know that it, it was a, a, a real blending of what uh, what John Howard talks about as the nipping and tucking um, of uh, of industry policy, where you you give a little bit and get a little bit. So if we move. Just a little bit ahead now, John Moore has departed from the portfolio after the 1998 GST election to be Minister for Defence. And we now see South Australian Senator Nick Minchin, a, a renowned conservative, behind the steering wheel of modernising the government's approach to industry. Um, Nick Minchin, being a senator from South Australia, was conscious of the importance of manufacturing to his home state and mine, and of yours, Victoria, as we discussed. So, did Minchin have his work cut out for him in the second term of the Howard government? Well, he certainly did because he was another surprise. Uh, this very well-regarded, very conservative member of the government was uh, a very strong supporter of um, support, uh, financial support for uh, the uh, manufacturing industries in his home state um, of South Australia, knowing how vital they were both socially as well as economically. And so uh, he's very, very much uh, a, uh, a, a, you know, an economic rationalist, as they used to call them, but, uh, but in, 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 not, an, not in, in, by his telling, not in an unrealistic way and not in a damaging way, which was a sort of hand-in-glove fit with John Howard's view as well. I, uh, my 
you're reminding me of my school years when I would actually, my bus used to go past the Mitsubishi site um, twice a day. And now it's a very, it's a transformed site. And obviously Holden as well, being a significant player mm. in the Northern suburbs of South Australia. And we've seen the same thing uh, happening in Victoria, but we'll come back to that near the end, if you like, Sean. But sure. I, I did want to mention something about Nick Minchin and in one of, in your paper is a photo of, of Nick, and uh, I asked him um, just out of curiosity, was there um, a history to the photo? Because he's standing with a vehicle, and, and the New York skyline uh, is is prominent there. And he said that the photo does have history. Uh, it was taken in New York during my time as Consul General, which was 2014 to 2017. And it was him with his official car, a Chevy SS, which was, of course, a Holden Commodore SS mm. built mm. for the US market. As industry minister, I persuaded the Howard government to institute a policy that our overseas diplomats have Australian cars as their official cars in countries where they were available. Naturally, as Consul General, I complied with the policy and I loved that car. which <laughs> I drove proudly up and down the east coast of the United States during my three years. So there we are. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, it's good to be able to, for a minister to be able to take advantage of his own edicts, uh, yes. I suppose, isn't it? I, yes. I, the, the other thing to, just to say very briefly, um, Andrew, it seems to me, is that uh, Nick Minchin put an incredible amount of work into the innovation side of industry policy. Um, you know, I know a very, very uh, important move forward. He, you know, he... Uh, got into the uh, business of advancing industry policy into that sort of research um, area and the sort of new sciences that were developing. Um, and uh, that was a great contribution and, and made that entire portfolio area much more solid and forward-looking, I think. Yeah. Well, indeed. And, and now we turn our attention to the third term of the Howard government and, and a new industry minister, another Queenslander, Ian McFarlane, um, a former farmer turned agri-politician. Uh, McFarlane had previously served as Minister for Small Business um, and yet a relatively new entrant to the parliament, having won the seat of groom at the 1998 election. Uh, McFarlane brought a tremendous amount of practical experience with him to the role. Uh, what are your earliest recollections of Ian McFarlane? Well, um, he also was a small business minister, um, or whatever the iteration of that policy, uh, that, that portfolio was. I think in that not long after he became an MP, and it was of a, if I'm remembering correctly, a, a peanut farmer from Kingaroy, um, <laughs> who <laughs> brought to mind another uh, peanut farmer from Kingaroy. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> and the pumpkin scones, and it's in. And, and, of course, the voice, that gruff, uh, ah. you know, the gruff uh, rural sort of voice, um, understated, uh, very, uh, you know, he has that sort of um, fixed look, you know, great powers of concentration that always seemed to me just uh, looking at him through the, through the media. Uh, but serious, but also um, pretty quickly, really, you got the impression he was a very flexible thinker. Mm. And uh, and and an absolute sponge for information. That's how he always struck me. Oh, I can let you in on a little secret. If after five minutes and he started to roll his sleeves up, he was interested in what you had to say. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> 
if they stayed down, I thought, gosh, this 15 minutes is going to be a long time for this, oh, really? for this lobbyist. That's that's a very, very that's, – that's a technique – you know, presumably worked out on the farm. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yeah, very, very, is very generous to me, uh, as, yeah. as all of the people I interviewed um, for this paper, but very, very generous and frank and, uh, and, and uh, uh, reflective, you know, self-reflective of, of yes. what he could have done, you know, very, very interesting man. Well, one of the first tasks set by John Howard for Ian McFarlane was the putting together of a new... Uh, automotive competitive competitiveness and investment scheme. Um, what can you tell us about how McFarlane went about developing this scheme and, and perhaps other policy uh, areas? Well, you know, um, Ian McFarlane was uh, mentored by John Moore uh, politically, and um, he uh, he told me that uh, the one piece of advice uh that uh, John Moore had given him was that it was the industry minister's job to fight with the treasurer uh and uh he described his relationship with Peter Costello and I think this is a really important thing about the um the Howard government Andrew that you know Costello was treasurer for the entire life of the government Howard of course was the prime minister for the entire life Alexander Downer the foreign minister all the way through you know very very key like the key roles externally, internally, and at the top of the government, all the same. Very, very interesting, uh, in a way, made made it easier to, to write this paper because there was so much constancy. But um, Peter Costello was quite unrelenting in his argument for uh, to keep the, the spending, um, you know, uh, you know, sort of disciplined, mm. and uh, and ideologically, uh, as well as practically, I suppose, was opposed to a lot of these government support programs for industry. Um, so, uh, you know, McFarlane was determined to, knowing that he had the support and encouragement of the Prime Minister, to come up with that second plan, and it was a big plan. It was uh, $4.2 billion over... 10 years and you know that's this is we're talking 2002 yes. that's big money yes. um and it did involve you know the cut in tariffs um but i think things had started to turn i, I do think that was an important point in um broader opinion about government support for the car industry you know i think there was a, uh, consumers were starting to get a little bit uh turned off by local cars Turning more towards uh, imported cars, foreign cars. So, but but you know he did an incredible job of of fighting and winning. Um, I mean, he always said he had a good relationship with Costello all the way through, and Costello got the yes. politics. But again, this is a key part about the Howard government. They had the arguments. They had the arguments. There were people with different positions, and things were argued out. Honestly, not personally, and when a decision was reached, often with the imprimatur of the leader, then it was accepted that that was the way to go and they would go out and defend that policy. It's an interesting thing to reflect on in terms of when people might want to talk about contemporary politics and whether leaders are challenged all that much inside their party rooms or at their sort of front bench cabinet or shadow cabinet levels. Well, of course, in addition to this, and I can speak from having a front row seat, Indeed, Ian McFarlane was also working on the government's energy white paper, securing Australia's energy future. So he 
had a super portfolio in a way, uh, when you think about just what he was involved in, the resources sector, the energy sector, the automotive, the manufacturing, uh, his days were quite full. So, um, yes, I think that there is something to be said about those those policy challenges, but also the, the many policy debates that would have um, occurred in, in the party room during that period. Well, and what's very interesting about that white paper, Securing Australia's Energy Future, which I'm assuming, you know, would have been a lot of work for you, um, uh, as well as him. Um, that really started to pull together. Again, that was, I think, that was a bit of a seminal kind of uh, piece of work because it, uh, it it pulled together industry, the sort of, you know, because it, it was about, you know, looking at um, getting behind technological developments. Some of them might work, some not, but, you know, in renewable energy, carbon capture and storage, Um and that that was quite a challenging thing for the coalition parties at the time. This was a time when they were kind of making, you know, a lot of members of that government were making fun publicly of Al Gore and questioning climate change and all that. You know, renewables was not wasn't flavour of the month on that side of well, politics. That's right. And but also, in a, he was chair of uh, the Ministerial Council on Energy, which was all state Labor. Governments, yep. and he often would say to me that he wished he could sell tickets uh, to that uh, to the meeting because of the fighting that was going on in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one would argue that there's been nothing but civil war in this area for the last decade when it comes yes. to energy policy, which is disappointing. But um, yeah, look, he he was in for a fight and a policy fight uh, is certainly something that uh, holds him in good stead. But if I can just now have a look at the final two terms, yep. the government's goal was to hold overall employment numbers in manufacturing, retain the four domestic car makers, Holden, Toyota, Ford and Mitsubishi, and the adjacent components sector, and encourage more sophisticated manufacturers and greater involvement in global supply chains. So in your opinion, and through your research and the paper mm-hmm. you've written, was the Howard government successful? Uh- it was, I think, in terms of what it wanted to uh, achieve. There was definitely an element of in, in its ambitions for a degree of managed decline um, because the tide was clearly going out um, on, um, you know, the traditional manufacturing, if you like, uh, in Australia. It was very hard for us to get access to markets because of our um, distance. Um, and, uh, you know, we were moving more to sort of services, financial services, um, you know, and, and um, even hospitality, education, resources, you know, resources, much um, greater emphasis on, on that, uh, as well as sort of agricultural exports. So um, it effectively... While manufacturing held in terms of its numbers largely, in terms of the employment in the manufacturing sector, it only declined by, I think, 0.1 of a percentage point each year, whereas, um, you know, generally across the economy in all sectors, the rise in uh, employment was like 2% a year, but it largely held. Still, the GDP share of manufacturing, I think, went from 14% to 11% over the life of the government. Holding on to the car manufacturers, well, they did all stay, you know, in a technical sense, 
Mitsubishi had made the decision to go just around the time of the 2007 election that saw the, uh, the fall of the Howard government. It announced very early in the next year that it was going and going almost like, okay, we're going. And, um, yeah. and then, then the door slammed almost sort of immediately after they put out the statement, you know. Um, but so, you know, yes, they held on and they did what they wanted to do, didn't frighten the horses, held most of their electoral coalitions and kept people in a lot of jobs. You've got to remember, it wasn't just about holding onto office. It was about, you know, as having you know, spoken to the former Prime Minister, John Howard, you know, it was about how, you know, people have only got one life. How disruptive do you want to be in their ability to keep a reasonable wage, a bit of job security, yes. doing work that they quite like? Um, and, you know, giving them a fair deal, essentially. Uh, that's really was the goal, as he put it. And, and they got there. They got there. This is right, because it's it's almost the pre-digital era when that all started to explode and disruption became a, a buzzword. But yeah. you conclude your paper by reminding readers that when the Abbott government was elected in September of 2013 and Joe Hockey was treasurer, uh, Ian McFarlane was handed back the keys of driving forward Australia's industry policy. During the hiatus of uh, being in opposition, the global manufacturing and automotive industry had changed, and so too had the coalition's view towards Australia's car uh, industry. What can you tell us about this time, the key players involved, and how policy decisions had a ripple effect through South Australia and Victoria? Mm. Uh, well, it was a completely different scenario and it's uh it says something i think that um you know uh, that ian mcfarlane was called on to return to that portfolio um after what six years of uh, uh since holding it um in the final two terms of uh, of the howard government um ford had announced in the final uh, months of the labor government that it was going to so there was only just in terms of the current series, just uh, General Motors and Toyota left. Um, they uh, that was enough. There was enough sort of scale there for uh, for that the industry to continue on, and for all of the ancillary sort of uh, you know uh, businesses that relied on the automotive industry uh, to you know in terms of um, supply and product development to to keep going. But it was pretty clear. Um, to Ian McFarlane that it probably wasn't going to work. He tried very, very hard, went to Detroit, tried to get them interested, right. desperate, desperate to get, uh, you know, uh, General Motors to please take some, um, you know, uh, some of our vehicles, you know, what do you got? What he said to the, uh, he told me that he, he spoke to the local uh, sort of CEO here and uh, said, so what's, what's your next what's your next uh, sort of iteration model-wise, you know, and he got some ums and ahs and you know, was shown pretty much not enough. And he said, oh, he started to get very worried that this isn't looking good. And on the other side of it, he, as he explained it to me, he, uh, Joe Hockey, with whom he hadn't had a really great relationship, uh, he was now treasurer, um, but back in the days when they were, you know, fellow ministers in the Howard government. I'm not sure how well they got on. Not that this was something that he spoke to me about. But, uh, and then he, you know, felt that, I think he said Peter Credlin, who was uh, Tony Abbott's chief of staff at the time, and Matthias Cormann, the finance minister, were, as he put it, very dry. So he said it just wasn't, there was no one he could turn to really inside the government. 
for a bit of kind of uh, capacity to turn things around. And, of course, uh, hockey uh, famously uh, taunted General Motors. That's right. On, uh, on the floor of the parliament and said, you know, get fair dinkum or you're either here or you're not. And uh, they said within hours, send out a press release from Detroit saying, we're not. <laughs> so that's yes. that. Um, Chilling. Things things move pretty quickly. Now, what that meant for, uh, you know, South Australia and Victoria, um, it wasn't as bad as people feared, but there's certainly, in direct terms, I mean, it obviously, you know, caused a great degree of dislocation for several thousand people and their families. Um, but the economy managed to absorb them and uh, put most people in, in, keep them in work. It, that's, that doesn't quite account for every flow-on effect, which is a question of capacity, what you can do, as we've, as we've seen during the pandemic. Once supply chains, global supply chains are interrupted, sometimes you, it's a little bit of a worry if you can't, if you've got some problems producing vaccines or, you know, just in the broader manufacturing area, um, you know, how, what, what, and I think this will be an issue that we have to look at and we should be looking at now. What are our capabilities? What, what's our capacity? You know, what can we do? Where's the degree of self-sufficiency that we might need going forward? But that's perhaps for another discussion. Well, no, you no, you ponder a, 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 something that I want to finish on, and that is okay. do you have any advice for the parliamentarians and policy advisors in the Morrison government developing industry policy? And in retrospect, do the, the giants that we've spoken about today of the Howard government era have anything to offer in achieving success in this portfolio? Uh, well, Andrew, I think the great example is um, don't be afraid to surprise. That's the example from, from the Howard um, era, it seems to me. Um, you know, be willing to do the unorthodox things. I mean, um, in order to position the nation well, in some ways you could argue that the sort of, um, you know, uh, fiscal sort of, uh, you know, on the spending side, um, the positions that the government has taken, uh, the, the Morrison government has taken um, to sustain the economy um, could provide an example in other areas of policy, um, like industry policy, where, you know, don't be afraid to say, you know what, Australia needs this, we need to be doing this. You know, it's one thing to have a set of beliefs. It's another to have them tested against reality and see how they're going to be applied in the future. And um, I think um, that, that takes a degree of bravery because you're going to have, as the Howard government did, very powerful and persuasive and capable people making counter-argument who could create some problems for you down the track. But you've got to do, ultimately, you've got to have those conversations and you've got to be willing to take a few risks to get there. That would be my view, and it's it'll be up to, you know, current industry minister, the treasurer, the finance minister, the prime minister, you know, any other sort of ancillary economic ministers um, to have those talks. I think, I, I think they. It's a, it's always about equipping the nation for the future, not just doing what you think is going to work between now and the next election, I suppose. Well, Sean Carney, to use that expression, you've done it again. 
Thank you very much for uh, being, in the first instance, a visiting fellow uh, with the UNSW Canberra and uh, for your involvement with the Howard Library. Uh, we are grateful for your, your paper, Nipping and Tucking, uh, and we look forward to uh, working with you uh, in the years to come. Sean Carney, thank you for being our guest. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it. If you would like to learn more about the Howard Library and public leadership research at UNSW Canberra, visit the Howard Library website at howardlibrary.unsw.edu.au. The UNSW Canberra campus and the Howard Library are located on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and future. Opinions expressed by individuals on this recording are those of the individual, unless stated otherwise. Policy Perspectives is copyright of UNSW Canberra.